And now the five nominees for performance by an actress in a leading role. Kate Blanchett in Tar. The 2023 Oscars have been causing a very audible buzz. And that's because of one standout film and star. And Michelle Yeoh in Everything, Everywhere, All the People are celebrating Michelle Yeoh, the Malaysian actress who is finally getting a well-deserved and long-overdue Oscar award. A nod to her incredibly impressive 40-year acting career. Yo has been kicking ass on and off screen, but it's her Oscar win that's being talked about in the media as truly historic. And the Oscar goes to Michelle Yeoh. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, (laughs) this is a beacon of hope and possibilities. This is proof that dreams dream big and dreams do come true. She's the first Asian actress to win, but she's not the first to be nominated. The first Asian woman to be nominated for a Best Actress Oscar. Um, Were you aware that you were the first one you got the nomination? Actually, there was another first, Mo O'Bron. From the 1930s? Yes. Nearly 90 years ago, there was another Asian woman who patiently sat in her chair at the Oscars, listening to her name being called amongst some of the greatest actresses of Hollywood's golden age. That woman was Merle Oberon. Merle Oberon is an old Hollywood actress who was born in India to a South Asian mother and a white father. And she was the first Asian woman ever nominated for the Best Actress in a Leading Role Oscar back in 1936 for a film called The Dark Angel. But before that happened, I wanted to tell you that I loved you then. I love you now as much. I love you with all my heart. That was a snippet from Dark Angel, the World War I romantic drama, with Merle Oberon starring as Kitty Vane, the Englishwoman whose two childhood friends fall madly in love with her. It's a sentimental love triangle, which leaves one person heartbroken. And when you see her, you'd understand why. Let's set the scene for that night at the Oscars. It's in March 1936 in this uh, hotel called the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles. Merle Oberon steps out of her car and onto the red carpet. And, you know, she wore this, like, white dress, you know, chiffon with, like, gold specks and everything like that. She's holding onto the arm of one of the biggest Hollywood moguls of the time, Samuel Goldwyn. Does that famous trademark of the lion roaring ring a bell? You've probably seen it thousands of times before the start of a film. Yeah, that's MGM, Metro Goldwyn Meyer. You'll be hearing more about him soon. And so there were six nominees. Other nominees included uh, Catherine Hepburn and Betty Davis, you know, two of the leading stars of that era. And keep in mind, you know, when she got the nomination, she was like 25 years old. And she lost to Betty Davis. And that was Merle Oberon's only shot at Oscar glory. Uh, And she did not win Best Actress. But, you know, what that role and recognition really resulted in was a few steady years of her having a career as a leading romantic heroine. So regardless of her losing the award to Betty Davis, Merle found success and more opportunities knocking at her door. 
and her talent at acting came in handy both on and off screen because Merle's entire life, she was hiding a secret. Yet at the time, people did not necessarily know that she was of Asian descent because she passed for white. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. I'm Takara Small. Today, we're talking about Hollywood's history of whitewashing and the story of Merle Oberon, the first actress of Asian descent to be nominated for an Oscar. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I was a kind of freak in high school who, like, became obsessed with the Oscars to the point of memorizing every Best Actress nominee, like, throughout the entire history of the Oscars, right? And so it was, like, in that quest that I came across Merle Oberon. That's Mayak Sen, an award-winning journalist and author of the forthcoming biography on Merle Oberon. And as soon as he saw her, he saw something of himself in those glossy 1930s studio pics. And, you know, my paternal family is from Kolkata, right? Uh, I'm Bengali. And so I was like, oh, cool. She's like kind of like, you know, one of us, right? He's a James Beard award-winning food writer, author, and Columbia University professor. And his cultural connection to Merle was just one of the things that drew him to the old Hollywood icon. I sat down with Mayak to chat about Merle's complicated and fascinating story. So we're talking about Merle Oberon. She is described as many things, um, you know, raven-haired beauty, brown-eyed stunner. And the term that kind of raises my eyebrows a little exotic. Totally. So exotic is a word that many people have used to problematically describe uh, Merle Oberon. So uh, Merle Oberon was born in what was then called Bombay, now Mumbai, in 1911 uh, as Estelle Merle Thompson. Uh, her mother was South Asian and her father was white. So Merle, who was six at the time, and her mother moved across the country to Calcutta in 1917 after Merle's father died. I want to like set the scene because this was also during a time of direct rule by the British. So she uh, was mixed heritage, she was poor, and the country itself was in the midst of very, very challenging colonial times. So w- what was life like for her then? Yes, totally. So Anglo-Indians were uh, treated as a sort of second class by British folks who were in charge in India at the time. Uh, But they were also unable to fully assimilate into this larger South Asian or specifically Indian population. Her fellow classmates made fun of her because of the fact that she was mixed race and she was not like everyone else, in addition to the fact that, you know, she was very poor. 
that was the kind of environment in which she was growing up. It was an environment that basically said, you don't really belong here. You don't belong in this country. And you're not really a person worth respecting. Once she's in her teens and out of school, she starts attending these nightclubs. And there are very few nightclubs that will let in Anglo-Indian girls like herself. The rest were for whites only. And it's at those sorts of nightclubs that she starts to get the attention of older, you know, wealthy white male patrons who just look at her and are like, wow, she is so gorgeous. The story goes that it's one of these wealthy men that takes her to England where she sets out to become an actress. Picture this. We're in London. It's the late 1920s. Think double-decker red buses, men in long black coats and top hats, giant fluorescent billboards cover the buildings circling the famous fountain at Piccadilly Circus. In comes the bright-eyed Merle Oberon. It's a huge change from Calcutta, where rickshaws, bright mangoes, and street food vendors decorate the streets. Merle is in the epicenter of London now, ready to take the city by storm. And she finds work as a hostess at this club called Café de Paris. And basically, you know, her job there is to mingle with men, kind of entertain them. And one of the men who took a notice of her was like, oh, wow, this girl is so beautiful. I need to cast her as an extra in one of my movies. Merle was starting out in the British film scene at an exciting time. The silent era was nearing its end and talkies were being made which meant studio heads and filmmakers were on the hunt for new talent. In 1932, she is at the studio called London Films, and it's there, you know, while she's waiting for tea, that this woman named Maria Corda spots her, and it's like, this girl is one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. She was just totally gobsmacked by her beauty, and she nudges one of the owners of the studio, Alexander Corda, her husband, and says, you got to sign this girl because she is going to make you money and she is going to be a star. I watched some of Merle's films in preparation for this interview, and you can immediately understand why she stood out. She was 5'2", petite and thin, her skin a shade of light brown, with dark, short, wavy hair that framed her oval-shaped face. On screen, her almond-shaped eyes glisten as she speaks. Every word that came out of her mouth was intentional and genuine. And when she breaks into a moment of pure happiness on screen, it reveals her sparkly white teeth, which is like pretty much a perfect smile. There wasn't ever a moment where I felt, wow, she's performing. Merle was the real deal. Oh my God, she really is stunning. Like she's arresting on screen. You, you can't help but look at her. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I was just totally transfixed because she was so unlike any other star of that era I had seen. So in early 1932, Merle signed a five-year contract with London Films. But, you know, at that moment, London Films understands that they do have a minor problem on their hands in the sense that this young girl who is at that point 21... Uh, she is visibly Anglo-Indian. You know, she could pass for white, but you know, her accent is still there. And so they need to concoct a sort of backstory that will deflect any questions about her ancestry and her heritage. So they decided to take things into their own hands by creating what was basically a lie. 
they concocted a new story for her, one that would help Merle climb the ladder of fame. And so first they start with her name. They decide to go with the name Merle, which was on her birth certificate as her middle name. And then for her surname, they decide to go with Oberon, which was borrowed from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And then they decide, okay, you know, what other birthplace can we uh, figure out for her that is not India because that would be too much of a giveaway. So they look at a map and they decide that they will go to the most remote part of the world from Britain possible, which is Tasmania, this island in Australia. You know, Uh. it's very far geographically from Britain and also, you know, it's very remote in the British imagination, right? And, you know, part of that whole myth too And that backstory is that her parents are white. She is white European by blood in this fake version of her story. Now, this isn't completely new or unheard of in the film industry. The act of film studios finding a potential star and turning them into one was part of classic Hollywood's star system. A talent scout would find the promising new talent and once signed to a studio, the talent would receive in-house coaching to develop their skills. In turn, the studio would build a new image around them. Think famous actors like Marilyn Monroe, Rock Hudson, and Clark Gable. They were all part of the star system. But coming up with a completely new image for a person by erasing their racial identity? Yeah, that wasn't so normal. I'm really fascinated at how she was able to reimagine herself and change her story because, like, let's be honest, nowadays, if I, like, meet a cute guy, like, I'm Googling him, I'm <laughs> looking him up on TikTok and Instagram. So how did she transform herself and change her identity? I would say uh, a lot of that had to do with the fact that her skin color was light enough to actually allow her to pass. You know, there have been some claims that she even used skin lightening creams, you know, the kind of precursor to what was later known as fair and lovely in India. In Merle's public life, she passed as an upper class girl from Australia. And as she became a household name, Australians absolutely loved her and claimed her as one of their own. But taking on this new identity wasn't just adopting a new skincare and makeup routine. She had to change everything about herself, especially the way she spoke. I've read interviews with people, white folks who knew her back in Calcutta, who said that she was kind of like Eliza Doolittle before Henry Higgins got hold of her, you know? Uh, And that is how she sounded, just like a very low-class girl. So what exactly was Hollywood like at this time for people of Asian descent? So uh, in the 1930s, Hollywood was quite hostile to Asian origin actors. And you can really see this prominently in stories of Boris Karloff, who, like Merle, was Anglo-Indian. And so many people might know him best as Frankenstein's monster in the Frankenstein movies. Oh my god, there's so much to dig into there. A lot to unpack there, right? About the fact that he played this person, this creature with a monstrous, yeah, yeah, pretense, exactly. Uh, But, you know, he went to great lengths, from my understanding, to suppress uh, any questions about his heritage. You know, he even adopted that stage name, Boris Karloff, that he figured sounded vaguely Eastern European or even Slavic, so that that could almost deflect any questions about his heritage. The truth is, South Asian, let alone Asian actors in Hollywood, 
weren't getting cast in starring roles. In fact, it was a far cry from that, if they were cast at all. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Whitewashing. This became common practice in Hollywood. For context, during this time, the U.S. had implemented the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was in place from 1882 all the way until 1943. And the racist notions about all Asians were seen on and off screen. Remember Breakfast at Tiffany's? The Japanese character, Mr. Yuni Oshi. He was played by the white Mickey Rooney, with taped eyelids, buck teeth, and a demonizing accent. In 1937, just the year after Merle was nominated for The Dark Angel, Louise Rayner won an Oscar for Best Actress. Who did she play? The German-American actor played a Chinese peasant in The Good Earth. As a woman, not such a one as you, not as good as you. But she is beautiful. She's beautiful. In the film, she wears a black wig and eyeliner drawn prominently upward to give her eyes an almond shape. She was even meant to wear a rubber mask to give her, and I quote, a Chinese look. It's hard to watch. The fact that white actors were cast as Asian actors, and the fact that they were awarded for those performances, it's a testament to the mainstream acceptance of this trope. It's racist and actively excluded Asian people. You might be asking yourself, where were the Asian actors during Merle's time? While there have been Asian actors in Hollywood since the silent era, the studios put barriers in place to prevent Asian actors from getting leading roles. Anna Mae Wong was one of those actors. She was known as the first Chinese-American film star, which is ironic because she was treated far from that. You know, in the 1930s, she was oftentimes just offered or really typecast in these villainous supporting roles and, you know, those meatier leading roles, you know, that were ostensibly uh, for Asian women were not available to her for a variety of reasons. Anna Mae Wong didn't have the ability to pass for white, and it was incredibly difficult to make it as an Asian leading lady. But Anna Mae Wong refused to demean or diminish herself by accepting roles that kind of dwelled in stereotypes. At the 2023 Screen Actor Guild Awards, James Hong, the actor in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, reminded Hollywood of their roots during the award speech. And he put them to shame. Well, anyway, 70 years ago, <laughs> two, my first movie was with Clark Gable. <laughs> but back in those days, I have to tell you this, uh, the good earth, the, the leading role was played by these guys with the eyes taped up like this and they talk like this. And the producer said the Asians were not good enough and they are not box office. But look at us now, huh? Merle could see the fate of her career so clearly if she was honest about her heritage. She'd be subjected to roles that relied on racist and untrue notions of Asian people. You know, she was trying to navigate an incredibly racist Hollywood studio system, one that essentially said that if you do tell the truth about your South Asian heritage, 
people will probably not know your name and you might have to just slog through demeaning supporting roles that do not actually make use of your talent. That was Merle's reality if she were to come out about the truth. Or worse, she might not have been cast at all. As Merle's starlight begins to rise, she's carrying this massive secret on her back. If her story comes out, she'll lose it all. What happens when she gets to Hollywood? That's after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. So we're back, and Mayuk told us all about Merle's backstory and the making of this mythical persona that filmmaker Alexandra Korda and the British film studio basically created for her. She's no longer Estelle Merle O'Brien Thompson, the half-South Asian actress from Calcutta. Suddenly, she's transformed into Merle Oberon, the Aussie-European actress who was born in Tasmania. So with this new persona, she arrives in Hollywood in the 1930s. So this Hollywood producer named Samuel Goldwyn takes a huge interest in her and decides to cast her in the leading role of Kitty Vane in The Dark Angel, which is the movie that she's eventually nominated for an Oscar for. And in this movie, she plays just this like normal English girl who grew up in the countryside and everything like that, you know, code for basically white. She is the whitest white girl imaginable, and that is exactly what she wanted in her career. And so he is the one who really is able to mold her as this sort of everyday girl next door who carries no threat of the outsider to white American audiences. Then Merle gets cast in the film adaptation of the famous book Wuthering Heights. The film is hailed as one of the greatest films of the golden age. Now, if you failed Lit 101, here's a little reminder. It's about a wealthy young woman, Kathy, played by Merle, who falls in love with her poor childhood friend, Laurence Olivier's Heathcliff. I don't think I belong in heaven, Ellen. I dreamt once I was there. I dreamt I went to heaven and that heaven didn't seem to be my home. And I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth. You know, I love her performance in Wuthering Heights, which is arguably her most famous performance. So was it her performance that really um, transfixed you? Like, what about her in that film did you find so amazing? Well, first of all, I would say, you know, it was the fact that this woman's acting really moved me and really touched me. 
Kathy, you know, she has such a tragic arc and I think Merle just hits all her beats really beautifully. Everything just really drew me in because it felt so different from other stars from that era. My one thought in living is Heathcliff. Ellen. So she was, you know, gaining some traction in her career. Critics knew who she was. I'm wondering what would have happened to her career when it was at its highest if people had found out about her true background. Uh, I mean, I would certainly say that had people known the truth of her heritage, uh, you know, back in the 1930s, especially after the Oscar nomination, any chance at leading roles would have dried up. Really? Just like, just like that? She probably would have had to settle for supporting roles that, you know, were kind of rooted in stereotypes of South Asian people and South Asian women in particular. Audiences were just not ready uh, to uh, accept uh, a, an actress of color uh, in leading roles like that in major studio films. Maybe she would never have been able to give that performance had she been truthful about her South Asian identity. Then in 1937, Merle experiences a life-changing event, one that would force her to conceal more of her physical appearance. So in early 1937, she is filming uh, this epic called I, Claudius, uh, which is produced by Alexander Korda. But about a month into shooting, uh, in March 1937, uh, she is on her way to a costume fitting for the movie in London, when her chauffeur gets into an accident and it is pretty catastrophic. Uh, and, you know, she remembers just kind of coming to like on the pavement and, you know, she alleged that, you know, right after the accident, she didn't remember who she was, but she heard all these people kind of hovering over her, like passersby being like, oh my goodness, that's Merloberon, that's Merloberon. Oh my God, that sounds terrifying. But long story short, after that car accident, uh, you know, she suffers a concussion along with facial scars. And for the next few years, those facial scars uh, do remain with her. And so she has to go to even greater lengths to conceal it with makeup and other tactics. For actors and other performers, having any kind of physical disfigurement can end your career. Thankfully, that wasn't the case for Merle. In the 1940s, she meets the man who will become uh, her second husband, Lucien Ballard, who is a cinematographer. And he figures out a way to light her in such a way that just obscures all her scars. And it's called the OB. It was named after her. And it's a camera lighting technique that, you know, became uh, quite well known. It must have been really tough for her because not only is she having to hide her background, her racial identity, she's also having to hide the scars that are very, very apparent if anyone were to look at her. I mean, her entire life, she has this burden of hiding everything about her. Yes, exactly. You know, her whole life was a performance, not to be hokey about it, but, you know, she really had tremendous pressure put upon her. And that pressure builds and builds for decades until she hits her breaking point, one that no one saw coming. And then she goes down to Tasmania and she sets foot on that island and immediately just starts to have a breakdown there. That's coming up after the break. 
So we're back and Mayuk has told us that Merle Oberon's personal journey in Hollywood was really challenging. While she found early success and fame in The Dark Angel and Wuthering Heights, behind closed doors she was struggling to conceal the truth. Over the course of the next few decades, she continues to act, but ultimately retires in the late 60s. This con that Merle had been running for decades has been believed not just by her fans, but by entire governments, countries. Her whole life felt like a lie. And then in 1978, uh, Merle is... uh, invited by the Australian government uh, to Sydney specifically to serve as this kind of guest of honor. And it will be followed by a visit to Tasmania. And, you know, keep in mind, you know, the public still sees Merle Oberon as one of the few, you know, Australian stars who really made it big on, you know, the global stage and whatnot, right? Uh, she goes on a few talk shows and they ask her, oh, you know, people say you're Australian, you know, do you remember anything about Australia? And she says, no, I don't really, you know, remember much about it. And then she goes down to Tasmania and, you know, by all accounts, uh, you know, she sets foot on that island and immediately just starts to have a breakdown there, you know, she's overtaken by these sorts of crying jags uh, and she barricades herself in her hotel room and she asks uh, her husband to intercept all her calls and everything and you know she is there because uh, the Lord Mayor of Hobart uh, is going to have a reception in her honor and so on her way there she tells her driver allegedly that actually I wasn't born in Tasmania I was born in India But then the minute she gets into that room, she keeps up the ruse and pretends that she was in fact born in Tasmania, even though no one can find any records attesting to that claim. And you know, she had claimed herself that her birth records uh, were destroyed in a fire. So she went into that room, regardless of t- what she told that driver. And, you know, there are different accounts of what exactly went down. Some people said that she started to give this speech and then, like, started to cry. Others said that she fainted midway through the speech. Regardless of what happened, it was a total disaster because, you know, think about it. Like, decades upon decades yeah. of pain are just barreling towards her in this one moment in which she has to face the fact that you know, what she's been living under is not the truth. And, you know, there's been so much about her personal life that she is denied in the public eye. The weight of all of that um, decades. I mean, I can't imagine what that would feel like to have it all catch up with you and also live a very public life. Exactly. It was, I mean, I just have nothing but compassion for her when I think about what that moment must have been like for her, you know. Merle makes it out of Tasmania and back home to California. Sadly, and maybe not surprisingly, the intensity of her trip and a half a century long secret weighs heavy on her health. She suffers from serious heart issues and a year later dies of a stroke. She's only 68. I have a question about how, and this isn't just for her, but how we view people and the labels we give people after they've died if they have identified differently than their background. So she, it's a difficult conversation. So is it is it okay to label her as the first actress 
of Asian descent to be nominated if in her lifetime she chose not to, even though we know that choice wasn't really hers to make because she had to survive. It's very tough. And that is a question that hangs over me constantly as I am writing this book on her. You know, am I just grafting uh, 21st century mores onto her story, right? Uh, and retrofitting them in a way that doesn't, uh, you know, quite gel with the way that she self-identified and saw herself. And I would just say that, you know, in private, there's so many indications that she did have a connection to her ancestral birthplace, you know, and she did have a connection to India and her family in South Asia in some way. And there's so much that we still do not know about her private life and the choices that she made and, you know, the psychological torments that fostered upon her. It does feel appropriate to me in this case to label her as the first Asian woman to have received a nomination for Best Actress at the Oscars. Changing her identity wasn't her decision alone. These things don't exist in a vacuum. It happened because of the way things were in Hollywood. And that says more about the system than it does about Merle Oberon. And I am certainly not comfortable with erasing her altogether, you know, uh, because that is part of Asian history in America and the history of representation in American entertainment, you know, is the fact that Yes, there were figures like Anna Mae Wong who proudly owned their heritage and they refused to be typecast and they refused to be put in boxes in some way. But there were other figures like Merle Oberon who felt as though the only choice available to them to actually create and do what they loved, which was to make art, was to conceal their heritage in some way and pass for white. And that is part of our history too. And you know, I think that we can own that now that we're in 2023. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on her life and her journey if it were to happen right now. Like, do you think Hollywood would be more welcoming of her and she wouldn't need to come up with this elaborate story? God, I mean, I hope so. I really hope so, you know? Like, I'd like to think that Hollywood is a lot more accepting of people from (laughs) backgrounds that are not part of the dominant culture in terms of race, in terms of class. I don't want to paint too rosy a picture because, (laughs) you know, you'd be foolish to think that Hollywood is a a wonderful environment uh, for any actor of color, including Asian actors, to, you know, exist within. But I'd like to think that Merle Oberon could live the truth of herself and her heritage in public if she were alive today. Hollywood still has a lot of work to do, but you can see the culture shifting. Films, TV, and podcasts are starting to prioritize representation. And to those filmmakers and studio heads who thought that stories about people of color wouldn't resonate with audiences or that they wouldn't make money, they were proved very, very wrong. If you'd like to learn more about Mayak Sun's work, check out mayuk-sen.com and buy his book, Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. His biography on Merle Oberon is set to come out in 2025. Next time on They Did That. In the Black community, they called her the Black City Hall. They didn't know how she went and solved their problems. They just knew that she did and had the means to do it. 
They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by India Whitkin. Our associate producer is Serena Chow. This episode was edited by Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And our theme song and additional original music is by Cedric Wilson. <laughs>